Welcome to this week's Parsha Shir, Parshas Vaera. I'm going to focus on the topic that I discussed last year, which was the Kalvachomer. A Kalvachomer is a logical device where you use a well-established fact um, as the foundation for uh, a logical conclusion about another fact that has not yet been established. For example, in this week's Parsha, it says that Moshe Rabbeinu came to God um, and he said to God, you know, I, I've really struggled. You, you've set me up on a, on a, a wild goose chase because I, I've tried to convince the Jewish people. I've tried to convince them that I'm here to redeem them from slavery, to liberate them from slavery in Egypt. And, and they're refusing to listen to me. And, uh, and you expect me to go to Paroi and, and you expect me to tell Paroi that somehow um, I'm the liberator of the Jewish people. If the Jewish people don't want to listen to me, how would you expect Paroi to listen to me? That's a Kalvachomer. Because the expectation is that the Jewish people would certainly listen to Moshe Rabbeinu. Uh, and Pharaoh has got less likelihood. It's less likely that he would listen to Moshe Rabbeinu. So if the Jewish people won't listen to Moshe Rabbeinu, that's the easy one, that's it. he's pushing at an open door, one would have assumed, then certainly when he's pushing at a closed door, Paroi, in other words, he, that he's certainly not going to succeed. So let me read you the Pasuk, um, and Moshe spoke before God, and he said, the Bnei Yisrael, the Jewish people, the Israelites, are not listening to me, they're taking no heed to anything that I say. How is it possible that Paray is going to listen to me? And then he tags on at the end of this uh, appeal to God to see sense. In other words, that the whole thing is a waste of time. He says, Those three words, I am not a particularly good communicator because I have a speech defect. So this posuk needs to be unpacked. Uh, and for a very simple reason. There is the famous question, and it's a question that all the commentaries bring up and discuss and go to town on. Because a Kalvachomer only makes sense if there's no external factors to, di uh, to distract you from the logic that is posed by the Kalvachomer. I'll give you an example that's based on this particular Kalvachomer. The Posuk says, in this week's parasha, in close proximity to the Posuk that I've just quoted, the Posuk says, do you know why the Jewish people didn't listen to Moshe Rabbeinu? Very simple. Because they were thoroughly depressed, they were totally absorbed in the work that they had to do. They couldn't possibly pay any attention to anything because that would have distracted them from the work that they needed to do as slaves. Now, therefore, Moshe Rabbeinu could talk all he wanted. It wasn't going to make any difference because they weren't listening. They couldn't listen. They had no opportunity to listen. That's not the case with Paroi. Paroi has all the time in the world. Think who Paroi is. Paroi is this fat cat king. He's the most powerful person on the planet. He's sitting there in his throne room in the royal palace in Egypt. And he's sitting there and every day there's a whole list of people who want to come and see him. He doesn't have to do anything. He just sits on his throne. They come, they present, they leave. He's got all the time. That's all he's doing. So Moshe Rabbeinu is just one of a parade of people who's going to come to Paray. He has every opportunity to listen to Moshe Rabbeinu, whereas the Jewish people have no opportunity. They have no space in their calendar. They don't have 
an opportunity, an hour to spare to listen to Moshe Rabbeinu telling them everything's going to be okay because they need to do the work. They need to fulfill their, um, the, their task. They need to discharge their duties uh, in the, uh, whatever it is that they need to do, the planning of Pisom and Ramses that they were doing, the building these cities. They're building the pyramids. When you're building the pyramids, you're not listening to a prophet telling you God's going to liberate you. So the Kavah Chumrit doesn't start because there's good reason for the Jewish people not to listen to Moshe. And that reason doesn't apply to Paroi, in which case his argument to God falls flat on its face. Now, that's the question. We're going to address that today. We're going to do a little bit of, uh, uh, of the Darash Mordechai, because um, I'm very, very happy that I got this new set of Svarim that uh, we've been discussing in the last couple of weeks. Darash Mordechai is Rav Mordechai Druk, who was uh, a fantastic Magid in Yerushalayim, and we're going to look at what he says about it, but I want to first talk about Rabbi Ferber, Rabbi Tzviya Ferber. I don't have the Sefer open here in front of me, uh, and I haven't actually included it in the um, source sheet that I'm, I'm posting on my website. Uh, and by the way, when, whenever I uh, give a shir, generally speaking, all the, the um, Dibre Torah that I discuss will be disclosed in a source sheet that you can check up on. Uh, it's either as a comment on YouTube or on SoundCloud, or you can find it posted on my website. Uh, and uh, that would be wonderful if you could take a look at it inside. But actually, what I'm about to tell you is not on a source sheet. Um, and it's a part of a Hesped that I gave yesterday. I gave a Hesped yesterday for Rav Chaim Druckmann. Rav Chaim Druckmann was uh, a Rosh Hashiva of a Hesdi Yeshiva in, uh, in Eretz Yisrael. He, um, he lived in the southern part of Eretz Yisrael. Uh, he was an incredible uh, leader. He was actually a member of Knesset several times, occasionally for the Mizrahi party in its various different forms, once in a coalition kind of agreement with the Poale Agudas Israel. But he was a fervent um, supporter of, the, of Medinat Israel, an incredible man. He was also the leader of Bnei Akiva, um, and he was, and he, he did incredible things for all aspects of Jewish life in Eretz Yisrael, particularly since the creation of Medinat Yisrael since 1948. He was born in 1932, and he was born um, in a Polish town. It's, it no longer exists. It's now part of Ukraine. Uh, and he managed to escape the Holocaust with his parents because uh, because he went to uh, Russia, to the Soviet Union. That saved his life. I don't think they had a particularly easy life there. And in fact, when eventually they got on a boat to go to Palestine, uh, and there, there were an option of three boats, and they were standing at the shoreline at the port, and they were, list uh, they were reading out the list of names, and they seemed to have missed the first time that their name was read. They thought they were on one ship, and they weren't. And they went to the person who was reading the names. He said, well, I, I read your name, but now the ship is full. You'll have to go on the second ship. And they went on the second ship. And of the three ships that sailed, um, uh, they were, there was only one that wasn't sunk by torpedo, and that was the second ship. So his life was saved in a miraculous fashion. And he told his Talmudim and whoever would, would listen that he realized that his life was saved for a purpose, and that purpose was to make sure that the creation of the State of Israel would be part of the uh, messianic redemption. He was going to do everything he could to prepare the, the groundwork 
for Mashiach to come. And that's why he felt he had to teach Torah and teach children of all ages and to do everything that he could to ensure that Eretz Yisrael would be fully ready and fully prepared for when Mashiach comes and made the announcement that the Messianic era is upon us. So, I spoke yesterday about Rav Drukman. I was one of several speakers, but I was the last speaker. And as the last speaker, you tend not to be able to say all the things that the people have said previous to you. And you have to find new material. And I knew that everybody who was going to speak before me was going to tell stories about Rav Drukman, about his life, uh, both before he came to Eretz Israel and afterwards and all the different projects and incredible things that he was involved in. And he was an incredible person. He was a person who barely slept. He was a person who taught. He was a person who wrote. He was a person who was involved in politics. He was a person who was involved in social work. He had nine children, one of whom was adopted. Another one was Down syndrome. Uh, His home was open to hundreds of guests and he was always ready to meet with people to talk about matters that concerned them, whether they were, they were, they were personal matters or matters, uh, um, communal matters, the things that uh, affected many other people as well. He was an incredible individual, so, but I knew all of those things were going to be said. So I, I began by describing the Kalvachomer that we have at the beginning of Parshas Feira, and then I continued and I said as follows. So this Kalvachomer is very interesting not just because it comes in and of itself. We don't know, well, I don't know what the other nine are. By the way, I'm interested. If anybody knows what the other nine Kalvachomers are, I'd, I'd, be, I'd love to have a list. I do believe that uh, I've previously seen a list, and it's not just a list of ten, it's a list of, of uh, several, more than ten, because I think there's uh, variations in the, on the different Kalvachomers that exist, but I'd love to, if anybody, any of the people who are watching this or listening to this, could send me a list of the ten Kalvachomers in the Torah, I, I'd really appreciate that very, very much, and I know that it's easy to reach me via my website, and that's, of course, uh, rabbidonner.com. So please, if you, can, uh, if you could send that to me, I would be very grateful. But uh, the question about this Kavachomer is not the Kavachomer in itself, but the additional phrase at the end of the Pasuk, I am hard of speech, I'm somebody who can't speak easily. What has that got to do with the Kavachomer? Why did he add that as part of his statement to God? Um, it's interesting because... The Ramban says that um, Moshe Rabbeinu was actually a very poor choice for a prophet. The fact is that in order to be a prophet, and all the prophets, by the way, fitted in with what I'm about to describe, in order to be a prophet, and a prophet, let's face it, is a bit annoying. He's somebody who comes and tells you things that you don't want to hear. I want to tell you the word of God. God says the path you're going down is very bad, and if you continue on this path, this and this and this is what's going to happen. Who wants to hear that? I mean, you're leading your life, you're, you're plodding along merrily in the way that you're going, and you don't particularly want to change, and then somebody comes along and tells you, you need to change. Now, the person who's going to tell you that has going to be, is going to have to be very compelling, a charismatic individual, somebody who speaks well, somebody who conveys a message very, very well. No doubt that whoever the Novi is, let's say Yeshaya, Yeshaya comes down and he's going to tell the Jewish people, you know what, you're really doing the wrong thing, your behavior is wrong and you need to behave yourself. And you know that Yeshaya was a very powerful speaker. 
he didn't mince his words, and they, he wanted people to listen to him. He must have been very tall, very imposing. He had a, a regal bearing about him. He probably spoke with a British accent, and he would get up in front of the people, and they would listen to him, because he was a great speaker. He was a great communicator. He was very charismatic. Yeshaya, Yechezkel, Yirmiyahu, Amos, Micha, all of these people. That, that was their character. That's who they were. Because if they weren't that, if somebody was a bit of a neb, if somebody was a bit of a nerd, and he shuffled in, and he wasn't particularly imposing, and he had a whiny voice, and he would speak to the people, who's going to listen to that person? Nobody. So in order for Yeshaya to be taken seriously, no doubt he was a fabulous speaker and an excellent communicator. How is it that the most impressive of all the Nevi'im was Moshe Rabbeinu, who admits openly, I'm not a good speaker. How is it that God chose him? Of all the people he could have chosen, it would seem, from what we hear from Moshe Rabbeinu, that Aaron, Aaron HaKoyen, was a great communicator. That's why he said, Shlach Tishlach, right? Because he thought, he thought the, that Aaron HaKoyen is going to be the most effective communicator, not just to the Jewish people, but to Parai. Why? Moshe Rabbeinu is telling God and you and me, we're reading the Chumash, I'm not a good speaker. Why was he chosen? Why was he the one? So Rav Ferber says a remarkable idea. He says that the original Novi, the one who becomes the, as it were, paradigm of the holy man in Jewish narrative, in Jewish history, that the Rambam says that somebody doesn't believe in Moshe Rabbeinu as being the one that connects us with Hashem, is her a heretic, somebody who is guilty of heresy. Do you know who that is? It's Moshe Rabbeinu. Do you know why? Because nobody could ever say that the reason anyone listened to him was because he was a good communicator. If he came to the Jewish people and they listened to him, it's because God wanted them to listen to him. If he went to Parai and said, let my people go, he's repeating the words of God, send out my people and they shall serve me. Do you know why Parai listened to him? Because God wanted it. Every aspect of the liberation of the Jewish people, of the exodus from Egypt, had to be completely about God, not about the messenger. And that's in fact what we say every single year at the Seder night. He didn't use an angel, he didn't use a messenger, he used nothing else, no other medium. It was God himself that was in the frame when it came to the liberation of the Jewish people from Egypt. It was him who did it. Him with a capital H, not Moshe Rabbeinu. So Moshe Rabbeinu says, 
says, God, that's exactly the point. Do you know why Para is going to listen to you? Specifically because you are asked for Soim. You think that the Jewish people not listening to you is some proof that Para won't listen to you. One thing's got nothing to do with the other. No one's listening to you. I want to prove to you and to them when it finally happens that when it happens, it's because Hashem wanted it to happen. That when it happens, it's because it's a miraculous exodus from Egypt. Hain b'nei Yisrael shomu. The Jewish people didn't listen. It was God's word and they didn't listen. This was the most powerful prophecy that these people had ever heard. And they took no notice and they paid no heed. And the Eich Yishma'eni Paroi. And in addition, Vani Aras Fosoyim says God. And now, by the way, Vaira is has all the expressions of Gula. God says that is exactly the point. Vega'alti, I will free you. I will liberate you. I will be the one who's going to take you out of Egypt. You, Moshe Rabbeinu, are a cipher. You are the proof that it's God that's going to form the Jewish nation out of this slave group that are now incarcerated as slaves in Egypt. That is the point. And in my Hesped, yesterday for Abdrukman, I said, listen, I didn't really know him. The truth is, I didn't know him. I never met him. Curiously enough, I discovered a couple of years ago that uh, we are related. I was related to Rav Drukman. His wife, Sarah, is descended from the Dunner family. He's descended from Rav Yosef Tzvi Dunner, who was the chief rabbi of Holland, great uncle of my grandfather. She's a direct descendant from that branch of the Dunner family. So yeah, then he's a third cousin or a fourth cousin, twice removed, whatever it may be. Anyway, once I discovered that I was related to him, I put it on my bucket list. I must go and meet Rav Chaim Druckmann. I never went to meet him and I never met him and now I never will until until I'm not going to meet Rav Druckmann. However, I did read up about him. I know quite a lot about him. And I asked people who knew him to tell me about him. And the one thing they said to me, the one common theme that ran all the way through the articles about him, the photos and videos I saw, and the information I gleaned from people who knew him was that he reveled in Pashtus, in being very ordinary. He would wear the little B'nai Akiva shirt, which has the strings that tie the top, you know, and he would, he would go and teach. Little children would come in to see him and he would engage with them. And he would drive his own car to late at night to go to the most far out places to meet a little sniff of Bnei Akiva with only five or ten kids. It didn't matter. He didn't need a hundred or two hundred or three hundred. And he had no chotzer. There was no group of people around him that was somehow preventing people from visiting him. And he wasn't a great speaker particularly. I mean, never worked on it. His messages were very powerful, but he was pretty pedestrian as a communicator. And I think he was making a point. We are now in the Ikvasa de Mashiach. We are now in the period of time immediately before Mashiach arrives. No one should say, do you, do you know why all this is happening? Because Jewish leadership made it happen. No, no. We're ordinary. You and me. And I said something more. I said, you know, when you read art scroll biographies, they can be incredibly impressive. Although somebody once told me, that art scroll biographies are essentially all the same story. The only thing they change is the names and the dates and the photographs. 
Because it's the same story. Every Godel, by the time he was three, was already learning Chumish Rashi. By the time he was five, he knew the whole Mishnah's Balper. By the time he was seven, he was already learning through Shas. By the time he was ten, he finished Shas and never slept. And he was, you know, he spent his entire time, you know, 24-7 dealing with matters of the Klal. And he was a perfect father and a perfect husband and a perfect child and a perfect Rebbe and a perfect everything else. You read these stories, they are very, very impressive. But the thing is, it creates a bit of a them and an us, right? Because I'm not like that. I do like to sleep at night. And I'm not perfect in any of the respects that the person in this book is perfect. So I read the book and I'm impressed about that other group of people, you know, I'm not the great Reb Moshe Feinstein, and I'm not Reb David Feinstein, and I'm not Reb Achonah Wasserman, I'm not the Chofetz Chaim, I'm never going to be any of those things, because all those people were incredibly great, and I'm not great. That's what the feeling is one gets when one reads these stories, because you don't get any sense that there was any imperfection. But actually, what Reb Chaim Druckmann was trying to convey is, we're all ordinary. But ordinary people can do extraordinary things. The Rambam says in Hilchas Tshuva, somebody else mentioned it last night in the Hesped, he says, we can all be Moshe Rabbeinu. You think to yourself, how can we all be Moshe Rabbeinu? How is it even possible to be Moshe Rabbeinu? He says it in Hilchas Tshuva. That's what you're meant to be thinking about when you're doing Tshuva, I could be Moshe Rabbeinu. I can't think of anything more disheartening. But that's if you misunderstand who Moshe Rabbeinu was. But if you look at this posuk, Vehain Loishamu Vehain Bnei Yisrael Loishamu Elai Veechish Ma'eni Parai. Do you know who Moshe Rabbeinu was? He was a failure. He was very ordinary. He walked into the, whoever it was in the Bnei Yisrael. Loishamu Elai. They didn't listen to me. They took no notice of me. They ignored me. I was marginal. I didn't make any impression on them. And then he's going to go to Parai. How's Parai going to listen to me? By the way, he was right. Because plague after plague, Parai ignored him, dismissed him, threw him out. I'm a terrible communicator. I have a speech impediment. I have a stutter. I don't know what it was. But whatever it was, he knew that he couldn't convey information well. He wasn't a compelling talker. And yet he turned out to be the one who gave us the Torah, who delivered the Torah to us at Mount Sinai. In fact, says Rav Ferber in his Sefer, that the reason why Hashem chose Moshe Rabbeinu to be the one to give us the Torah is that no one should ever say that the reason we accepted it is because somehow we were so impressed with the May, the way Moshe Rabbeinu presented it to us, that's why we took it. And then when he's gone, we can say, well, it was only because he was a great salesman. He pushed it on us because we couldn't escape his sales techniques. But actually, we don't want it. No one could ever say that but Moshe Rabbeinu. He was very ordinary. And I think that when I, I spoke yesterday about Chaim Druckmann, but I think actually it's true of many Gedolim, even the ones we read about in art scroll biographies, if you really read between the lines, they're very ordinary people. They're very much like you and me. And yet... They become like Moshe Rabbeinu's. They become this incredible source of strength and of activity and of success in faith endeavors and the things that we need to, we need to do in order to be close to Hashem. 
Chaim Druckmann was very ordinary. That, I think we really wanted to convey that. He never really wore a jacket, never wore a hat. He never tried to convey a Rosh Hashiva image. He was just like a madrich in Bnei Akiva, who happened to be the head of a yeshiva. And he happened to be a deputy minister in a government and a member of Knesset, and to be a writer, and to be able to communicate great ideas. But I'm, I'm just ordinary, I'm just like you and me. That's unbelievable. That's how we have to be. And that's the power of this Kalvachomer that we're being taught about in this week's parasha. The point, says God, is that when great things happen, they don't have to happen because you're successful. You do your hishtatlus. You go and speak to the Bnei Israel. It didn't work. That's not your fault. You did what you had to do. Don't worry, it's going to work. Ultimately, it's going to work because Hashem is on your side. Go and talk to Parai. He's never going to listen to me. Don't worry. He will listen to you. And if he doesn't listen to you the first time, you'll go back again. Don't give up. Don't say, I'm not built for this job. I can't do it. Of course you can do it. I've got so many impediments. I'm so useless at that. I'm not that clever. I'm not a good communicator. I didn't pass all my exams. I didn't go to Harvard. I never got a PhD. I never, I never was the best boch in the yeshiva. I never was the one who went to Kolo for 10 years. I was never the, the uh, Mitsuyan of, uh, of all the people in my year. What are you talking about? Moshe Rabbeinu says, Not only am I not that good, I'm actually a terrible communicator. And yet he became the greatest leader of Jewish history. He's the one who became the messenger who delivered us the Torah. So that's the powerful message that I delivered yesterday and which I'm sharing with you, which comes out of the uh, pages of Raferba's Sefer, an incredible Sefer, as you know, which I've quoted many times in the past. But now let's look at the Darash Mordechai. The Swas Emes, he says, says something very interesting. He says, Moshe Rabbeinu didn't know that the reason that they're not listening to him, that they don't believe him when he is delivering the message of liberation to the Jewish people, it's because of Koitzer Ruach. He thought that the reason is, is because he's an Aral Svasoyim. So the Torah is the one that tells us about Koitzer Ruach and Avodah Kosha. And the Sfas Emes is saying something very, very powerful. The Sfas Emes is revealing to us something that we always need to bear in mind. And do you know what it is? Sometimes we're fighting the wrong battle. We are so convinced that the reason why something doesn't work is for the reason that we've given it. That we forget that there may be another reason. We forget that actually we could, only, we could succeed if we could broaden our mind, if we could be more open-minded to solutions, to problems that we haven't even thought of yet. Moshe Rabbeinu comes to God, he says, the Bnei Israel didn't listen to me, why? The Jewish people didn't listen to me, and they should listen to me, because they have very good reason to listen to me, but they didn't listen to me because I'm not a very good communicator. Now, I'm going to go to Paroi, who doesn't have very good reason to listen to me, He's certainly not going to listen to me if I'm an Aras Fosayim. And the answer, says the Torah, is you're making a mistake, Moshe Rabbeinu. The reason why the Jewish people aren't listening to you is because of Koitzer Ruach and Avoid Kosher. And Parah is going to listen to you ultimately, even if you're an Aras Fosayim, 
Because that's God's will. And he's going to take you seriously. You're trying to solve the wrong problem. You're telling Hashem, please take the Aral Svasoyim away from me. Make me a good communicator. God doesn't need to make you a good communicator. Forget what happened with the Jewish people. That's not relevant to this discussion. You go and talk to Parai and he is going to listen to you. That's what the Svas Emes says. There's another answer. Yesha Tirtsu, he says, Sha'am Yisrael tzorich lishmaya afilu she'yesh le'koytzeruach. That there is this idea that even when we're suffering, even when we're going through pain, even when we live in extremely challenging times, our duty, our obligation is to listen to the word of God. We have to rise above our situation. Why? The whole point is that the word of God is directed to the Bnei Israel. We have to be the ones who recognize that notwithstanding our circumstances, notwithstanding the challenges we face, God's word is directed to us. We are the chosen people. He's made promises to us and he will keep them. We must be on the lookout or the listen out for the word of God so that we can hear it when it comes. The Jewish people are waiting and hoping for such a long period of time for their ge'ulah. Says Moshe Rabbeinu, it makes sense. They should have been able to hear Moshe Rabbeinu. And even so, they didn't listen. So then he says, Kol Shekein, Paroi, Shemimenu Mavakshim L'Shachrem Milioine Avodim, Chinom Ein Kesef. You're coming to Paroi, he's got no reason to listen to you. That's what the Kalvachomer is. He's got no reason to listen to you. They've got reason to listen and should be able to rise above Koitzer Ruach. The Torah is telling you that it was a mistake that the Jewish people didn't listen. Paroi makes no difference. Whether it's Koitzerach, not Koitzerach, it's not relevant. He doesn't want to listen because he doesn't want to liberate people who are working for him and improving his economy. Vadai Shalayishama. And now the Darsh Modchai Rab Modcha Druk goes further and he gives an idea which is beautiful. Uladidi Nira, he says. In my opinion. Levair Ba'ifan Achir. But he's, I want to explain it to you, this idea of the Kavachamer making sense. But I have to give you a couple of introductions. In a Kosov Orachaim, the Orachaim writes about Koitzer Ruach. What does he say? Why was it that they didn't listen from Koitzer Ruach? He says, because they were not B'nai Torah. What does it mean to be a Ben Torah? Somebody who's infused with the enthusiasm and spirituality and the faith qualities of Torah, and you're immersed in Torah. But if you're not a Ben, a ben Torah, you can't hear there's certain things which just go over your head. That is what the reference to Koitzeruach is. They weren't B'nai Torah. Koitzeruach was means that somehow the Ruach of Torah was removed from them. It was, it was separated from them. They didn't have it. 
What does the Torah do? It increases the size, it expands someone's ruach if they have it. Says Rav Chadruk, I want to explain to you based on a Gemara. The Gemara says, Who is a truly free person? A truly free person, someone who is, has, uh, shakes off the shackles of slavery, of avdus. Who is that person? That person is somebody who studies Torah. Misha Isik Batoira. And the truth is, says Rav Druk, it's hard to understand this idea. How can you understand that, a, that someone who's Isik Batoira is a Ben Chayrin? How does that make sense? Because there's nobody who has more obligations and more duties on them than somebody then somebody who's Isaac and Torah, what are they doing all day? They wake up in the morning, ah, I better get in front of the Gemara. I, I'm going to have to learn more Torah. I'm going to have to look at this week's parsha. I'm going to have to look at all the Mepharshim. I'm going to have to study Halacha. You're constantly, and whatever you do, you have to think, what does the Torah say about this? What does the Torah say about that? So how can you say that someone who's Isaac by Torah is not Meshubad, that you're going to consider them a Ben Chorin? Haloi kashe chazal medabrim ala Isaac by Torah kavanosom al misha Isaac what does it mean when Chazal calls someone an Isaac Batoira? That not one second of any minute, in any point of their waking hours, is ever without Torah. There's no Batola. Every aspect of their life is totally focused on Torah. There's no one who's a greater slave than somebody who is Isaac in Torah. That being the case, how does the Urachaim suggest that the reason I Ruach, the Koitzer Ruach is because they were not a Ben Torah? What are you talking about? Somebody who is a Ben Torah, that's the person who's got Koitzer Ruach. So there seems to be a problem here, and Rav Druk wants to sort it out. Ach, Keshener Amik Bedover Nira. If we look into it, more deeply, we delve into it, we dive into it. What we're going to see? What's the difference between an Eved and a Ben Chayrin? I'll tell you. The difference is not that an Eved is the one that works hard, but a free person doesn't work at all. That's not the difference. Ben Chayrin, who loy misha eno oisem uma im chayo v'chay chaye batola v'shamu. It's not that somebody who's a Ben Chayrin spends their life doing absolutely nothing and has nothing and no obligations throughout their waking hours. That's not the definition of a Ben Chayrin. Lehepuch. It's exactly the opposite. Somebody who's a Ben Chayrin, in, in some respects, you could define that person as the greatest of all avodim, of all slaves or servants or people who serve more correctly said. Why? Because he's completely and utterly mashubad. He's enslaved by his desires. Do you know what the true differential is between an Eved and a free person? Ah, Eved works for his master. 
It could even be that the master sometimes works harder than the Eved. It's, it's nothing to do with the fact that the Eved isn't working, um, or sorry, that the master isn't working and the Eved is working. They're both working, but the Eved is working for a master. Ach, kol haruchim shaloi heim. All the profits from the work that the master is doing, they go to the master. They belong to him. So his work has a benefit at the end. Because he's independent. It belongs to him. His time belongs to him. And his work, therefore, whatever it produces, is his possession. So the freedom that he has is that that which he works for belongs to him. Whereas an Eved, he has no say on the work that he does or any of the products that are produced as a result of his work. Do you know who the greatest Ben Choyen is? I'll tell you. Is somebody who's an Isaac Batera. Because in any acquisition, any other acquisition, in the type of acquisitions that we are familiar with, any other kind of acquisition, So the truth is, very often, that whatever it is that you produce, I mean, the truth is, you don't use it all, and it's used by other people. So to the extent that you could suggest that the work that you're do is doing is producing something for you, you know that the product of your activities is shared with others. It's shared with uh, the people, your co-workers. could be shared with your boss, even if you're getting some uh, profit share of it. And even if you're somebody who's 100% a business owner and you have a family, you're going to be sharing it with your wife and your children and, your, and you're going to do all kinds of things with the money which is not directly relating to you. Somebody's Oisik and Torah, whatever they do, whatever mitzvah they do, whose account gets credited? That person's account. They are the ones. So they, the ultimate Ben Chorin is the one who makes the most profit from the work that they do. So someone who's Oisik Batoro's time is totally devoted to Torah. They're the only ones who could say what well, everything I do is somehow going to be for my, well, it's going to be spiritual benefit, but it's my benefit. Whereas even a Ben Chorin, he may not be an Eved, but in some level, at some level, they are an Eved because the product of their work is going to be shared with others. An Isaac ben Batorah is a true ben Choyrin. Am Yisrael, hoyu avodim ben Mitzrayim. Do you know what the Jewish people were in Egypt? They were the ultimate form of slaves. They were the slave's slave. If you want a definition of slave, the Jewish people in Egypt. They had no autonomy at all. Everything they did belonged to the Egyptian state. It belonged to Pharaoh. It belonged to others. They were slaves. That's the ultimate They have no room in their spirit. There's nothing left of it. It's completely and utterly bombarded 
with obligations that have nothing to do with them. That's Koitzeruach. Mipnei shelohoyu b'nei Torah adayin lohigiu lemalas osak ha-Torah. They were not able, they weren't b'nei Torah. They had no chance even. They had no opportunity to be b'nei Torah. Because everything about them, they were just workhorses. Everything that they did had to be for the sake of the Egyptian taskmasters. So the opposite of a ben Torah who's oisik ba Torah is an eved like the Jewish people, like Am Yisrael were, avodim im Yitzrayim. Lochein hoya lahem koitzeruach. And that's why they have this description, the definition which the Erechaim gives us of koitzeruach, because they weren't oisik ba Torah, they were not b'nei Torah. Okay? That's the introduction, that's the Agdoma. says Rav Druk beautifully. According to that, in my view, let's see what, what he comes up with. Shehine Parai Ola Ligdula. Do you know who Parai was? He becomes great. He's wealthy. He's powerful. And all the wealth of the entire world came to Egypt because of the famine. And he's now inherited this country. He's inherited this, this royal position. He's the monarch. He's the pharaoh of Egypt, the wealthiest country in the world. He has all the gold and silver that you could ever have. Why? Because of the rava, because of the famine, everybody has to give everything that they have in order to be able to feed themselves. It's a person, he has everything. Nothing, no one can contradict him. No one can undermine him. No one can go against him. The river Nile is, has to subject itself to him. No one can second guess him. This is somebody who can have whatever he wants, whenever he wants it, at all times. But you know what happens to people? You know, they say power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. He was utterly corrupted by the power that he wielded because he had everything, because there was nothing he couldn't do. In this physical world, in this, in this uh, world that is kind of devoid of spirituality unless you're invested in, in, in Hashem and in wanting to be an Ovid Hashem, he didn't have that. He had everything he wanted and he was the God. He became the greatest thing that anybody ever knew and that's the way he thought of himself. That's who Pare was. And he calls it Shigoin Godless. It kind of it warped his mind to believe that it was true. He never looked in the mirror and said, ha ha, they may think I'm great, but I know the truth, I'm not. He believed that he was a God. Everything is me. Everything that's happened is because of me. The whole reason Egypt is successful is because I am so great. I am a God. That is what Farai believed. And this mental condition, that's what he refers to it as. This mental condition led him to being completely and utterly wrapped up to everything, 
any kind of physical material pleasure that the world can give. He was completely meshubbed. He himself became an Eved. In some respects, more of an Eved than an Eved, because no part of him was invested in Hashem. Every part of him was only invested in anti-God, in the physical, material world that he thought he led and that he thought he presided over, which of course he didn't. But that's what he thinks. But there's nothing more Meshubbin than that. If, if we're going to say that an Isaac Batura is a Ben Chorin, somebody who's the opposite of that, somebody who's completely Meshubbin to Olam Hazer, who's completely and utterly wrapped up in the physical, material world, that's somebody who is an Eved, the ultimate form of Eved, the opposite of an Isaac Batura. You know what he did? That's what Rav Druk says, it's a medrash. He, he didn't even go to the bathroom. People in his palace thought he never went to the bathroom. He would swim in the Nile every morning, and that was when he went on it. That was a bathroom break for him. He wouldn't let anybody know that he needed to go to the bathroom. They thought that he'd reached some supernatural state where going to the bathroom was no longer required. He wasn't even human, he was superhuman. Condition is boinim bedovar. When we think about this, nira ki eich lecha shibud garua mizeh kamoishahevi rashi. There is nothing more meshubah than this. Somebody believes that they are the ultimate. They're at the top of. I mean, I know we're going to use the words in the Egyptian word. They're at the top of the pyramid. That nothing comes above them. Not even God. There's no greater shibud. There's no greater slavery than this. Hine yotsa maima. He would go up to his neck and he would do what he did in the water so that nobody should know he's going to the bathroom. Get up every morning, he would go to the river Nile and he would do what he had to do. There's no greater ever than that. Now we understand the Kalvachoymer. Moshe Rabbeinu says, Yeah, I know that the Jewish people aren't listening to me because of Koitzer Ruach, but their Koitzer Ruach is not half as bad as the Koitzer Ruach of Parai, because they're Avodim, but they know that God exists, and they know that there's such a thing as freedom. But do you know the mental condition of Parai, he says? How is Parai going to even hear what I'm saying? Parai, who's the ultimate Eved. He's the worst form of Eved that can ever exist. Somebody who's completely consumed, enveloped by Olam Hazer, is somebody that cannot listen to the word of Hashem who cannot hear the message that God has to deliver and wants me to deliver. That's the Kalvachomer. Hein b'nei Yisrael lo'ishamu elai. I know because of Koytzer Ruach. Eich Yishma'eni Paroi. How can someone like Paroi, who's the opposite of a Ben Chorin, he's the opposite of an Isaac Batoira, he is the most meshubad of any human being that's ever existed, how will he ever listen to me? How is he ever going to be hear, able to hear the word of God? And with that, we'll leave it. Thank you so much. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening.